Hi folks, I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. Take it away, Mr. Sands. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. One second, please. Please, Mr. Caddy. Uh-oh. I don't want to go. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh oh. I don't wanna. Don't shoot me off into outer space. I sweat when they put outer. me in the pressure suit. Space. Bubble hell outer. in the flash Gordon boots. Space. I won't be remembered as man of the century. If I burn outer. up upon reentry. Well, are you reading me loud and clear? Oh, Ben. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. Deep cut. Wow, Eli, great job! Nice. <laughs> we all did it. We pleased Mr. Kennedy. Welcome to Deep Cut in our first musical episode. <laughs> <laughs> On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life in Korea to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Welcome to our second Coen Brothers episode. Woo! Woo! So last week, we started off by talking about uh, the Cohen popular pick, which was No Country for Old Men. So today, I decided to go first because I am the freshest Cohen fan, which is a better way of what I was saying last week. I was a Cohen noob, so <laughs> I wanted to change it up. You're the freshest, meaning like you have the best fashion sense. You know? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> And I asked, I asked Ben and Eli what Cohen movie I might enjoy, and they gave me a really long list of different movies. Of every that I... movie. <laughs> <laughs> they just gave you the filmography. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then I just, I guess I just had to pick myself, and because I really love musicals, and to my knowledge, we haven't really done a musical episode yet on this podcast. I went with 2013's Inside Lewin Davis, and I personally think I made the right choice for myself because it is my favorite Coen Brothers movie, and honestly, maybe one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. So I watched this movie for the first time this week before our No Country for Old Men episode, and I was really, really blown away. I feel like whenever people talk about the Coen Brothers filmography, Inside Lewin Davis is sort of a like a dark horse pick or or like a like people just don't really talk about it. It's a very low key movie that mm-hmm. people don't talk about when it comes to like good Coen Brothers movies. But I really, really love this movie. I connected so deeply with Lewin Davis as a character. I think it's a gorgeous looking movie. I think the plot structure is so interesting and in my personal opinion a really great reflection on like grief and how it's a it's a never-ending cycle and we can talk about that more later oscar isaac is so great all the uh, the musical scenes are, are genius what do you guys think about this movie i think it's one of their better character study type films talked a little bit about this in our no country episode which is that they kind of are really good at making archetypes and really quickly establishing a kind of character. But with Lewin Davis, you have a very specific kind of person. It's not really just the character. They really go deep into how this guy ticks. He's not really the most pleasant person. 
<laughs> but you do feel some connection to him and you do feel some empathy for him despite the fact that he's kind of a cantankerous little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. He's a little bit. But that that's kind of what is nice about the movie that you do find alignment and you do find some sympathy for him despite the fact that he can be very aloof and belligerent. <laughs> but they craft a really nice balance of making you understand him as a character. And I think the bits about grief, which are really, really subtle and really embedded within narrative, within what is really a very thin narrative, but they help it really give it some weight. And it's one of their better films that have a character in the center. I have a pretty deep personal connection to Inside Lewin Davis. I grew up listening to a lot of folk music, you know, Pete Seeger and Phil Ox in particular. And I love the ways in which Inside Lewin Davis examines folk music, both for its structure and tendencies in its songs, and also it as a cultural phenomenon and mm. its place in American history as a cultural force and as a business, really importantly for this mm. movie. Yeah, and I saw it right around the time when I was a burgeoning cinephile in the theaters, and I really quickly memorized the entire soundtrack and learned how to play it on the guitar. And I know all the lyrics by heart. Yeah, baby cinephile Eli. (laughs) (laughs) And watching this time I was singing along, I think it's a really important part of the movie that there are songs that have genuine warmth to them. Mm -hmm. You know, Wilson, you said that you love musicals. And this is a musical like that hit me this time around that the songs are all scenes and Mm -hmm. serve story function and character function even with a repeated musical number that's what you go but that's yeah i mean it's that repetition that happens a lot in folk music anyway the return to the refrain often at the end of a verse and that is built all throughout this movie we're gonna go way into this yeah did you watch that youtube video what YouTube video? There was a YouTube video that guy was like, uh, where, where a guy explained a quote from the executive music producer of this movie, T Bone Burnett, who compared Ooh. the structure of this film to the structure of a folk song. Mm. I haven't seen that, but I mean, that was I was thinking about that this time around. That totally makes sense. Yeah, for it's me, definitely yeah. purposeful. For me, yeah, it just so. feels like a visual album, if anything, with like skits in between. That's why it feels like when you watch it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> That's what it feels like to me anyway. I mean, I don't have enough of this, like... I don't have a very deep connection with music in general. But does that mean you feel like there's there's less weight to the actual, like, the meat and bones of the film, then? I don't think so. Like, like to me, there's skits, but, like, obviously the songs are part of the story that the quote-unquote skits that I'm calling them, which is kind of a understatement, right. I guess. But as in, like, just as a kind of frame of reference it's kind of what yeah. i have the best frame of reference for because when you watch it and you take if you take away all those scenes i would say the music is maybe half the movie which is a lot right and it's yeah. not a kind of sung yeah. musical it's not a sung musical it's musical numbers yeah right which i guess uh, i don't have to i can't really remember but like you know those kind of jukebox musicals or yes. classic hollywood jukebox musicals this has right. where characters break into song correct yeah, and when those songs. Like well, they wait. Want to break yeah. When when we say jukebox musical, that typically applies to one artist's discography mapped onto a often, I think, ham-fisted story. So there are a few different types of musicals, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. There's this jukebox musical, which it takes an artist's discography and applies it onto a story created 
after the fact based mm-hmm. on their music to yes. connect the dots. There are what's called backstage musicals, which are often about mm-hmm. the production of a theater show in which the characters singing songs are diegetic, very of right. the world. Yes, yes. And they're sung as if they're rehearsing or performing the show. And right. it's not a flight of fancy that characters are singing. Mm-hmm. And then there are musicals where part of the diegesis is like breaking out into song right and characters yes. just do this to express their emotions and which it's is not like, part of performing yes. something yes the term i was looking for was diegetic musical numbers or non-diegetic musical mm. okay. numbers which this movie inside lewin davis is full of diegetic musical numbers and no non-diegetic musical numbers i guess mm-hmm. it would be closest to that backstage musical yeah it's close was, to a know, backstage most popular musical. in early hollywood Yes. I mean, I use the term jukebox musical because the term jukebox in itself sounds like I'm going to play a bunch of songs. But obviously, right. these songs are not picked randomly, not because they're hits. It's not right. that kind of movie. But I right. think the reason why it feels that way is just that it feels like the songs are built to create an emotional arc for the film. Not that they are ham-fisted <laughs> skits, but you have these interludes where the so-called plot is happening. Right. You know? And then yeah. the music comes in. I mean, it's for me, it's just a frame of reference. It's not really a useful term, I guess, or a useful kind of comparison. But I, I find it interesting because of the kinds of musicals you can think about. Like if you think about musicals where, like Singing in the Rain, for example, where the singing, the song contents directly relate to what is happening within mm-hmm. the action of the story, right? Whereas this, the songs are very much thematically or emotionally connected, but not plot connected, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's a harder task to complete, Mm -hmm. right? Because they need to sort of make it work with the story, but also make it work with the character. Which is why, like Eli was saying, jukebox musicals sometimes can feel a bit more ham-fisted and kind of clobbered together, right? Because they are trying to do that thing where they're trying to make popular music, just kind of like different kinds of songs, just put them together. And the plot is very much just thin threads to put things together. Not that this is. (laughs) (laughs) Not that this is. At all. At all. all. As we're talking about the concept of a refrain and repetition, I thought a lot on this viewing about the idea of home. Lewin Davis as a character who is literally homeless. He does not have a physical space to return to that's his own. And he doesn't have a sort of core grounding, I think, in his soul. And he's kind of a hard character to read because of that. But what he does have is something that the structure of the movie gives him. It gives him a point in time and a feeling in time to return to, which is the opening scene and final scene of the movie, which, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe is repeated, maybe is not. There are some details Mm -hmm. that are a little bit different that sort of throws you off the scent, right? Cheeky little Coens. It's this point (laughs) when he can most cleanly connect with the audience at the top of the movie as a performer and as someone who is punched. And at the end of the movie, we can kind of connect with him on a different level, but a more complicated level. And things are the same, but they're different. Definitely. In terms of how we feel about the character and the movie at that point. That's very interesting. And I fear these are all points that we will touch on a bit later, but I'm gonna give just a tiny bit of context to this movie. So, This movie was written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen and produced by Scott Rudin. It was like a recent breaking story. And I don't think if you're not like embedded within the film world, like you might not have heard 
what went down. But Scott Rudin is a prolific American film producer, produced quite a few of the Coen's work, including Inside Lewin Davis and No Country for Old Men, a lot of Wes Anderson's films, Lady Bird, to name a few. And he had a history of being a horrible person to work for. Like a couple years ago, I was interning at a film production company in New York, and my boss, or like the person overseeing me, worked for Rudin before and like gave me countless stories of how he would blow up at work just like with no trigger. He, he would just like get angry at anything and it would happen very often and it would just be a very hostile and toxic workplace. So I sort of heard stories of that. But then this year in April, uh, both Vulture and The Hollywood Reporter both released pretty damning articles chronicling abusive experiences working with Rudin. And it's not just one or two, it's it's like 20, like 30 accounts that uh, these reporters have checked on and and like corroborated from different sources. And if you were to read one, I would suggest going to the Vulture one because it's, it's more comprehensive and yeah. it really shows the different ways that he abused his employees and sort of created this toxic culture uh, from top down. And it is extremely horrifying and um, really reading it like has somewhat put me off of working in Hollywood um, (laughs) because of how bad things were. And this is like emotionally abusive, but also physically abusive at points. So like, yeah, definitely keep that in mind. And I, I just didn't want to brush over it because um, Rudin was a big part of the Coens' work and frequent collaborator for them. Well, well, well said, Wilson. That's important to Mark. Yeah, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Okay, okay, back to the good stuff. Um, so Inside Lewin Davis is loosely based on the life of Dave Van Ronk, who was a folk singer and had an album named Inside Dave Van Ronk. And fun fact, both the album cover of Inside Lewin Davis in the movie and Inside Dave Van Ronk, they look very similar. He's just standing in the doorway. But the like one big difference between these two album covers is that in the Dave Van Ronk album cover, there's a cat in it, and there's none hmm. in the hmm. Lewin Davis one. Also... A little Easter egg thing that I noticed is that when Lewin is looking at the cover of Tim Lin and Davis of We Had Wings, that record, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he opens up the record and looks at the blurb on the inside cover, and it's writing about Tim Lin and Davis, only where it should say Davis, it says Van Bronk. Oh, interesting. I think a a nice little hat tip to the man himself. But the... The person who wrote the biography for Van Ronk said that the movie is is incredibly far from the life of that Dave Van Ronk had, except for like the the music segments itself, which is good to note. Um, I think the the Coens sort of began with the idea of a scene of Dave Van Ronk being beaten up outside a performance space in the village, and then they started from that idea and then came up with a bunch of scenes and 
and I think they both re- really are uh, were a big fan of folk music and just wanted to make a movie about that scene. Mm. And, Such and, a funny germ of an idea. It's like, yeah, I yeah. made a movie about this guy because I just had this fantasy of him being beat up. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> but okay. It, like, in, in interviews, it's really interesting because they they are big fans of the folk scene, I think, but they, I think they also, like, really love to make fun of it. Um, yeah. They, <laughs> one of them, uh, it's, because it, I, I was watching interviews, and then I realized I can't tell them apart, <laughs> and they don't really, in the interviews, they don't really, like, separate the names on the, the subtitles, it's just Joel and Ethan Cohen. so I don't know who's Joel and who's <laughs> Ethan. <laughs> I can tell um, the difference, <laughs> not to brag. <laughs> one of them, one of them said a lot of people would go into watching Inside Lewin Davis thinking that it's parodying folk music, but it is actually impossible to parody folk music because it's already so funny in itself, um, which I think is pretty well, it's hilarious. It's so sincere. It's so yeah. sincere. Yeah. But but there, another thing that they said is that they wanted to make a film at the point where folk music was sort of dying so that's why they said it in in 61 I, I think a really big thing to note is the music of this movie which i learned today was all recorded live on set so they had a week before production where they like pre-recorded songs and they sort of just treated that as a rehearsal but Oscar Isaac, uh, Justin Timberlake, Carrie Mulligan, Adam Driver, and and some other performers all performed their music live. Um, and the only exception to that was the Odd Triangle, which was lip-synced um, with Timberlake singing bass. Quick sidebar. Yes. That song rules. It's not <laughs> so hard. Wait, which one is that one? A hungry feeling. Came o'er me stealing, <laughs> and the mice were squealing in my prison cell. Oh, I can imagine like thirteen-year-old you like in the cinema, like rocking out to the <laughs> folks. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. That's really great. Along with T-Bone Burnett, they brought in big names like Marcus Mumford and Mumford and Sons, and Chris Thiele and the Punch Brothers. They all worked on this movie, and they're like the modern kind of bluegrass folk, a little bit poppy equivalent of what was happening in the 60s and 50s. Yeah, and Marcus Mumford actually voiced uh, Mike. That's right. Lewin Davis's old partner who who passed away before the, the, move, the events of the movie started. But I think it was really impressive that they all recorded their vocals live. I think that also makes sense because compared to other musicals, I think uh, the musical numbers in Inside Lewin Davis are pretty like shot pretty barely or in a, in a mm. bare sense where there's not too much coverage and there's not too much cutting and it makes sense because they just wanted to get those performances probably like by verse or or something like that i watched like it earlier this year i was sort of in a youtube binge and <laughs> um got into this youtuber who makes videos about like music in movies or just music in general, but a lot of uh, uh, about music in movies and made uh, a video about how Les Mis was so horrible because they set out to record live vocals um, on set and they needed to like sound blanket everywhere and it just like made everything such a mess. But 
I am glad that this was a, a massive feat for uh, the sound team on Inside Lewin Davis because they really pulled it off. And Oscar Isaac is an incredible singer. That's mm-hmm. what I came away from this film thinking. I, I mean, with this one, it's much easier for them to get live sound because most of the singing is performing, which is a bit more of a controlled scenario compared to Les Mis, which I have not seen, but seems like there's a lot more movement and kind of crazier set pieces where they are singing throughout. Like, how do you do singing when you also have other things going on in the background? That's quite messy. Yeah, whereas this one, the most messy sequence of singing is probably when he's singing in the car. Mm-hmm. Which I was like, because I read that note about it being recorded live, and I was like, yeah, this is pretty clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so whoop, 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 skip left side corner, skip left yeah. side corner. <laughs> So if you didn't listen to our last episode on No Country, Skip Levesay is the supervising sound editor who works very frequently with the Coens. In the music performance scenes, it sounds like the goal was just to get out of the way of the music and really bolster it with the ambient sound. You know, if he's mm-hmm. performing in the gaslight, there is some, there are cafe sounds underneath, but not too much else, and to really support the music. But it sounds like the car sequence, the road trip, was one of the harder passages to edit because it's a lot of the same sort of, you know, cars whooshing past or just conversation and performing in the car. And it sounds like that sequence took a couple of months of... What? For sound editing? Yeah. Or just editing? Oh, my goodness. Just to sound edit that sequence. (laughs) And... Levesay says, quote, our stuff is subtle but effective, end quote. The only passage of non-diegetic music that I caught in the movie is when Johnny Five is being arrested mm-hmm. and Lewin is bottoming out on this road trip and figuring out what to do next. There's a yeah. little kind of quiet drone that blends in with the traffic. Yeah. It's this subtle stuff that Levesay does while keeping the sound pretty naturalistic that mm-hmm. just changes the temperature slightly. Awesome. Thank you for this episode Skip Levesay Corner. I'm looking forward to the next two. (laughs) We love you, Skip. (laughs) We love you, Skip. I feel like I'm learning so much about sound editing from you, Eli. No one, like, none of the professors that we had ever focused on sound editing at all. Like, even Uh, in our production classes. Oh, okay. Michael Sloak, Professor Sloak. Oh, that's true. I took his History of Film Sound class, which I love. And kind of changed how I watch movies. Mm. Oh, that's incredible. That should have been a class that I took. You listen to movies. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I want to talk about this sequence. This middle road trip sequence. Yeah. So in the middle of the film, Lewin Davis was offered a trip to Chicago and (laughs) just is sort of thinks that he has nothing left to do in New York and goes on this road trip to Chicago where a bunch of shit happens. John Goodman's in the car with him, the <laughs> snoring trumpeteer. It's a weird segment, and I <laughs> kind of forgot it was there when I rewatched it, and I was like, oh, this happens. Yeah, But it, and, it yeah. really works because it's such, a, it's such an episodic movie that you can really like mm. just split up the movie into different segments that are glued together by these musical numbers, and it, mm-hmm. it, it, it works as a cohesive whole. If you sort of track the movie in terms of Lewin Davis's emotional well-being, I think it makes sense for it to be there in the middle to show him at 
at another low. I feel like the lows just keep on getting lower <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> I'm really interested in what that passage adds to the movie. It is about a quarter of the runtime of the movie, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Quite a yeah. lot, and yeah. It's a significant amount. And also, it's when we learn the important piece of backstory for Lewin Davis, which mm-hmm. is that his musical partner, Mike Timlin, committed suicide. Mm. And that's yeah. why Lewin performs on his own now. It's the missing piece in his life. It's yeah. what, in screenwriting, you might call the story ghost. It's the yeah. thing that has hurt him in the past that he can't really get over and, you know, is definitely not the source of his curmudgeonly ways, but it doesn't help, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting that we learn this in this passage of the road trip because Roland Turner, John Goodman's character, this mean-spirited jazz musician, is so not the person for Lewin to confide in. Like, there's yeah. nothing that Lewin can do right. and It's like it's the worst place for him to tell you this information. There's no one... It really is. Like, we talk about repetition. This isn't a space... A road trip does not repeat itself unless you're going doing a return journey back. But in, at least in this segment, you don't come back to the road trip because these characters, you don't come back to them. And so it's this very singular episode that is right in the middle of the film. And there's nothing to really kind of pair it with. You only find out about, this, like, about his partner's suicide once. Mm-hmm. And you hear about his death in other segments, but then this is like the, the moment in the middle. Yeah. It's, it's a very weird Cohen-esque detour in the script, right? But, but do you think that, like, because the, the point, or one of the reasons that he wants to go to Chicago is to audition for Bud Grossman, who right. is managing this bar or, like, performance space. Another real folk musician performance space called the Gate of Horn in Chicago, though Ooh, that yes. location exterior is from New York. Do you think that that is, like, the the big glimmer of hope for Lewin Davis? Because I feel like they might have, like, written it out to be, like, yeah, this is the goal. that or This is the mm-hmm. very, like, broad goal. If you see it like that, then it puts a lot more weight into the, the Chicago trip. Like, I'm not sure how to process that because it's such an odd part of the movie that mm-hmm. half of me is like, this feels not part of the story world. It's, it was almost like this Lynchian thing for me, this kind of descent into hell, which is very mm. interesting on its own, but it's confusing in the context of the movie. But having said that, it also is interesting that it's there, and I kind of have to give it props for existing as well, because it is cool that you have this weird Lynchian descent into hell, and that it just comes out of left field, and that's kind of... You don't really need to explain why it's there. It's just kind of there, and it's interesting fairly entertaining um i do feel like it kind of goes nowhere but that's kind of the point of the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day i think there's a strong argument that the scene in which lewin performs for bud grossman the manager at the gate of horn is perhaps the most important in the movie i remember mm-hmm. at the time of inside lewin davis's release a lot of critics were asking the question, how good a musician is Lewin Davis supposed to be? Mm. I'm not entirely sure how much that really matters, Mm -hmm. but there are some key clues as to what does matter planted in this scene, right? I tried Mm -hmm. to cheat and look at the screenplay 
which mm-hmm. I found online for this scene. So I just want to read this passage to you. Just to, yes. I was like, does this tell me anything about like how we're supposed to feel about Lewin? Okay, so it says, quote, on stage, guitar in one hand, Lewin swings a chair into place with the other. He sits, puts the guitar on his knee. Bud Grossman sits near the front of the mostly dark house. Lewin looks at him, looks at the guitar, a beat. Lewin says, okay. Then he plays, he finishes the song. He looks at Bud Grossman. Bud Grossman has yet to show any reaction to anything. A good beat, then Bud Grossman says, I don't see a lot of money here. Lewin keeps eye contact and does not display emotion either. End quote. So it doesn't really have much lead, but I think by not telling us how good Lewin is, again, the Coens are trying to draw our attention to other things. It's a lot about if Lewin can really connect to people. It's about his relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So Grossman, of course, recommends, not knowing that Mike has committed suicide, that Lewin reunite with him, which is ironic and tragic, knowing what we know about Mike. Another thing that Bud Grossman says is, when talking about Troy, another folk musician, is that he really connects with people, Mm -hmm. implying that Lewin does not or has trouble with that. Mm. And I think that the reason for this movie being episodic to me is that it is a tour of Lewin's relationships mm-hmm. and all the people who, as my partner said when we watched it together, give him grace, he leans on them and he takes advantage of them. Mm-hmm. And the people who he shouldn't really trust or bother with, like Roland Turner, the jazz musician played by John Goodman, he confides in emotionally. The world is a combination of putting things onto Lewin from the outside and Lewin kind of mucking things up with his own behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's just this strange sort of spiral and a cycle. And yeah. again, the end of the movie just returns him home to repeat things, maybe doing one or two things differently. The cat doesn't get out of the Gorefine's apartment this time, but there is both, I think, a tragedy in the repetition and a comfort. And to me, the Chicago scene and going to see Bud Grossman helps put some frame and lens onto the whole movie to help read it in that way. I like what you're saying about how he confides in people who don't care about him and he takes advantage of people he who do care about him. And I think as a character, what's interesting, and I think this gets into why this is a musical, right? Is that he does not like to show emotion to other people. And the only time he does show emotion is actually through the music itself. Mm. It's almost as if the folk music is the crutch for him to have an emotional connection with anyone. In the first and last scenes, when he's talking to the crowd after performing, that's when he's most comfortable, but that's when he's most charming. And he kind of uses that as a crutch. And I think that is why we don't get many scenes of him being open with other people because those scenes that we do get are actually the musical scenes. Mm, But those are embedded. They're embedded in the music. You know, if you really think about it, he's a person who thinks he's being open, but he's not. He's hiding behind the music that he does. He's hiding behind music. Mm -hmm. He's using that as emotional release when he's not releasing the emotion anywhere. Right. He's not getting on anything. Which is why it's sort of tragic that he chooses the death of Queen Jane as the song to perform for Bud Grossman. It's expressing Mm. a truth 
an authentic truth about his mood, but yeah. it's such a dour song and it doesn't mm -hmm. allow him to connect with Bud in this moment where he really needs to be charismatic in a way that he kind of can't be. Mm. But do you guys think that in this world with a certain talent comes success? Because I was like, oh, I think that like as talented as you are, maybe it's just not the right time. And I... it doesn't have to be like how you connect with the audience. I think it's like sort of this thing that he keeps on chasing. It's like sort of like you hold a tree out for a dog and he keeps mm -hmm. on chasing it throughout the movie. And then you just sort of see him get tired of it and not mm. and not feel interested anymore. And I think that, like, the whole industry, like, beat down on him is tragic, but also, like, sort of funny in a way. It's sort of like a, like a comedy of, mm. of, like, resilience. You, like, keep on seeing him get back up again and try mm. and then get beaten down. I think this gets to the question of why folk music as the genre and scene and cultural force a running theme in this movie that I noticed on this time around is the idea of authenticity. Which folk musicians, according to Lewin's judgment, pass the test of doing music for the right reasons? Even though I think Lewin sort of shifts the goalpost based on his mood and how much he likes a person. So Jim and Jean are too careerist. And Al Cody is inauthentic because he changed his name from Arthur Milgram and he put on a cowboy hat. And Troy is a soldier, so he's got to be this to Lewin. And then when an actual legitimate from Arkansas folk musician <laughs> performs, <laughs> Lewin harasses her from the audience. Mm. It's, it again ties back to Lewin's relationships. And if the music can really connect people or if it's kind of more cold as a business venture and I think that's sort of the question that the Coens are enjoying interrogating through this movie about the place of folk music in American history there was a whole like uh, there's a YouTube clip that is a conversation between Del uh, Guillermo del Toro and the Coens about this yes. movie and they just <laughs> the first thing that del Toro brings up is that scene that you were talking about and the codes put it like this like uh, they said when the real thing appears Lewin Davis attacks it and they're yeah. they're sort of trying to through this they're trying to examine what is actually authentic in in terms of music and what the industry itself was concerning itself with at that time which was far from authentic what is a valid mode of expression and connection with other people as a musician which again is why the first and last scene are so interesting mm -hmm. at the top we can just engage with Lewin as a musician as an artist and enjoy his performance and in the end we see him as a fuller more complicated person and it kind of yeah. begs the question is it the same experience or is it different and mm -hmm. I don't know I, I find myself a little emotionally confused, not in a bad way, but properly kind of feeling a torsion between feeling comfort at returning to this song that we were able to experience cleanly at the top of the movie yeah. and uncomfortable with everything we've learned about Lewin. It goes back to the, the quote that I was alluding to at the beginning of the podcast from T-Bone Burnett, who is the exec music producer on the film, 
and he compared the film to a folk song. And he says it, it starts out in, in the first verse and you, you hear about this, this incident, which in the film, the incident being Lewin Davis performing and then getting punched at the back of the gaslight. And then the second verse, which is sort of the mi- middle chunk of the movie, is a whole new story where he does his own thing and you sort of like get to know him a little more. And then at the end of the folk song, you get back to where you were at the very beginning and then now you you just know a lot more. So you yourself as a listener of the song or a viewer of the movie are able to make your own connections, emotional connections and decisions mm-hmm. about the character. Um, and yeah, I think that was a really beautiful way of sort of like packaging the, the, the plot structure of this movie, which I really, Agreed. really love. Yeah. I think... My favorite parts of the movie are the very, very small moments where very, very small details are revealed. And the Coens do a good job in the structure of this where they reveal and tell you information that leads you to know something and then later on revealing information that changes how you feel about it. So what's essentially happening, for example, with the abortion storyline with um, Carrie Mulligan's character is it's leading you down a path for you to find out that there is a little Lewin Davis somewhere. <laughs> and that doesn't get resolved. You just know that this happens. And the final time you really know about this is when he drives past the sign to Akron. And there's almost this moment where you're like, oh, he's going to drive there and talk to her. Nope, he doesn't. He just looks at it. it. It doesn't go anywhere. And those are the moments I like about this film because it creates loose ends. Mm-hmm. Almost purposefully so that you feel that he is adrift and that there are these things that he doesn't know what to do with and doesn't know where to go with. And you kind of follow him on this journey as he gets more and more adrift. And same with the story behind his singing partner. So I think Mm. these little moments really, it's like the little, they're barely plots, like very small B plots that they've embedded in them. They remind me a little bit of a Koreeda film. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge throwback where um, <laughs> there are these moments of like embedded information, very, very small embedded information that kind of give you a little bit of a huh moment. Mm-hmm. And those are the moments where I feel like I kind of understand him a little bit more because mm-hmm. the fact that he does not engage with those elements that he learns says a lot about him, that he does not want to confront these things. When you talked about that, it reminded me a lot about that scene where he... He visits his dad and he, he sings mm. that song for him. Um, <laughs> Which is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a little funny. Also a little sad, right? I don't know. I, I find it sad. It's, it's sad, sad, but I, I, I love a good poop joke. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs> they have yes. a few other poop jokes in their filmography. This is just one of them. <laughs> but again, one of the many. that's another moment where it seems like Lewin is connecting through his music mm-hmm. to his father. And yeah. then it turns out to be, well, I mean, I guess you can interpret it either way. Is is he really connecting and also just a poop happened? Or is it just <laughs> a poop face that's happening? I don't think... <laughs> Open to interpretation. <laughs> it was the only response that he, w- <laughs> he wanted to have to the song. <laughs> At least my reading is that it's just a coincidence that it happens, right? But yeah. It's not yeah. like a, he responded with that. It just he <laughs> ha- <laughs> But I mean, that's so why it's funny. funny. If that happened. <laughs> it's why 
random farts are funny. <laughs> Inside Colin Davis. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. While we're comparing Inside Lewin Davis to other movies, one thing that we talked about last episode was that any Coen Brothers movie, you can pull parallels from their other works, but mm-hmm. their other works are distinct enough. Before watching Inside Lewin Davis, I watched The Man Who Wasn't There for the first time. Really liked it, by the way. Good um, movie. I like it. Always love a surprise Gandolfini. And Ooh. I was thinking a lot about the similarities between Billy Bob Thornton's main character, Ed, and Lewin Davis. And I think that Ed and the man who wasn't there is a character who wears or tries on apathy, but turns out to deeply care, or he realizes how much he cares. Mm. And he bears the weight of unhappiness stoically until he takes it out on the wrong targets. Mm. I think those two things are a little in common with Lewin Davis's positioning in his own movie. And there are similar questions about is Ed the, the victim of the circumstances of his world or is he an actor of wrong in his world? As character studies, I think they're positioned in some rhyming ways that are interesting. Mm. Mm. I'm trying to think if there were other... Like, Man Who Wasn't There is one of those other Cohen films that feel like a deep dive into a character's psyche. Yeah. And, and much more noir, like classic noirish way with voiceover and stuff. I'm sure there are others. I feel like there's another movie, which one of the few Cohen Brothers movies that I've seen. That I, when I was watching Inside Lewin Davis, I was like, "Oh no, there is another Cohen Brothers musical that I've seen, and it is Oh Brother Where Art Thou?" With, <laughs> oh yeah, um, Clooney, George Clooney, and. His character's name in the movie is Ulysses because it's based on Homer's The Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And guess what the name of the cat is in this movie? It's fucking Ulysses. <laughs> um, pretty Where's direct his scrotum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's one of the best scenes ever. That the ending of that scene is so funny. That's I knew, that I knew it was so coming. I knew it was coming because the, I knew when he picked up the cat, I was like, that's not going to be the same cat. <laughs> but it was just about that realization from. Um, the town. Ta- what are the names? The, the owners of the cat. The the um, gor- the, the Gorfines. The Gorfines. The Gorfines. The Gorf- Great. Best I... scrotum joke in cinematic history. I mean, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's... probably. Yeah. <laughs> While we're on the scene, very briefly, I wanted to note that oftentimes Lewin is not the character who gets the last word in a scene. I just mm-hmm. found that interesting. I sort of want to talk about the 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 visual look of this movie uh, because that's it. Cool there. Because yeah. yes. it, it looks very cool different there. from No Country for Old Men or Fargo or a lot of the other movies. It's it's like it's like they they slapped a uh, a crazy fucking black promise filter on the camera. <laughs> uh, a black promise filter lenses, right? to those who to those who don't know um, uh, it is sort of are a cheap version of 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 how you can frost up a lens by putting um, a filter in front of the lens um, mm-hmm. and make things look blurry. Um, and this movie is, like, full of that. This this movie's soft as fuck. It's so soft. It's so <laughs> soft. And it's so beautiful when you get into that close-up, especially that first close-up of Lou and Davis singing in the gaslight. And it it's, like, gorgeous to see him sort of lean in and out of focus. Mm. And you, you just, like, feel the space expanding and, and like... Ooh. 
yeah, coming together. It, it's great. It's great. Love that. To know this film was lensed by <laughs> Bruno Del Bonel, who the Coens worked with only once before on this on um Paris Jetem. Yeah, yeah. Their short in that movie is very funny. Oh, really? I got to hmm. check it out. Steve Buscemi is a clueless guy in the Paris metro, and he accidentally pisses off a Parisian and just, like, gets into all these shenanigans. It's really <laughs> funny. Wait, it sounds oh, fantastic. It's sounds so good. Great. This is such a different-looking movie from, like, any of their movies, really. Yeah. 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 It feels... Uh, I don't know. You feel so close to the characters just with the... I don't know what lens they use for medium close-ups, but you you feel right in front of them and it, it is really incredible and also the way that um certain spaces are lit like the gaslight theater uh or performance space and the performance space in chicago and uh del bonnell in a, in the couple of interviews that i watched him give um he really emphasized um lighting and how he uses shadow and blacks to sort of focus you in on characters so the Cohen sort of let him run with having a lot of darkness and having a lot of um, areas in the frame falling to to black to sort of have a greater distinction between the subject of the the frame which is usually the character and the background um and also, he talked about the, the desaturated color palette of the mm. film. Um, Love that and, color palette. Yeah, and was using it to sort of make the audiences feel the, the gray New York winter and um, also Lewin Davis's, I guess, emotional state throughout the course of the film. But the color palette is so beautiful in this film it's so it's so dour but it's so beautiful gray and brown (laughs) (laughs) that's the color palette (laughs) wilson do you know if delbonel frosted the lenses because the light has such a hazy almost like an old hollywood close-up on a leading actress kind of look yeah i cannot confirm or deny but i can have a, a pretty educated guess that he did um I mean, the whole thing looks so hazy. Like, it feels like every scene, he just hazed the room. <laughs> every scene. A like, little bit of atmosphere aerosol. <laughs> like, a, like, like a Wesleyan <laughs> thesis film. No, I, I'm was sure... brought to you by... <laughs> industrial hazer, you know? All that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's almost like even the hard surfaces feel soft. Mm-hmm. Like, they're fuzzy. Everything just feels like it has a little fuzz on it. Yeah. Which also, honestly, inflects this movie's relationship to history, right? There's, to me, the frosting of the lenses or whatever makes the light look hazy is a little bit of a wink in the same way that they're kind of cheekily nudging folk music. It's Mm. a historically set drama that specifically wants to comment on a trend in American cultural history. And Mm. the lenses are the least kind of grounded or realistic technical part of the movie to me everything else looks and sounds pretty down to earth. Hmm, that's an interesting point because we talk about the dourness of the New York winter, but then you don't feel that grime. Yes. I don't know whether that's a knock for it, like knock on it because it's almost a fairy tale like imagination of the past. Mm-hmm. When you have that at much least in haze. Visual, at least visually, yeah, in yeah. Visually. So 
there's all there's a little bit of a disconnect or a conflict between that and what is actually happening in terms of the story mm. and like right. how shitty everything is really. Yeah, I don't know if it's supposed yeah. to put you at a distance or bring you into the fold more. I think it's an interesting choice. Right. I mean, I would say immediately it feels very warm. Like I would say I don't feel the coldness of the winter that much. Maybe that's not a good thing. I don't know. But it, I feel like I'm wrapped in a warm blanket when I'm watching the movie. That's kind of like the yeah. feeling I get. And that I, does feel a little at odds with what's going on. Yeah. I could see that working two ways for audience experience, right? One could be that it puts you at odds with Lewin's experience of even specifically mm. the cold and you look at him with a pitying eye from the outside of his experience. Or it's a challenge to see if you can really directly empathize with his experience mm. e- despite the warm look. I found an interview or an article on the American Society of Cinematographers where they talked about this movie. And Del Bonnell didn't really know a lot about folk music. And one of his personal, like, touchstones to this world was Bob Dylan. And um, the cover for The Freewheeling Bob Dylan was one of the images that Del Bonnell sent to the Coens. And it sort of features um, Bob Dylan in walking with a woman in New York in a, under a wintry sky and wearing a jacket, but he's still looks very cold and they came back to him and they were like yes this is exactly what we want this movie to feel like Dubonel says quote we had to feel the winter and that dirty feeling when the snow starts to melt <laughs> I'm looking at the album cover now yeah it's a very Cohen frame it is it like is. the use of a wider lens you know yeah yeah it's very very Cohen-esque it is yes it is uh, that is one of the signatures of the Coen brothers that like one of the really easy visual signatures is how they shoot like how remember how I was talking about earlier about how they shoot medium close-ups in such a like a Mm -hmm. weird way because they shoot most of their films on a 21 millimeter or a 27 millimeter Mm -hmm. lens which is a pretty wide lens Um, and then when you place it right in front of a character to get a medium close-up or a close-up you f- it, it, it feels so weird because you're like it's like you're sitting right in front of them yeah. because usually when you shoot a medium close-up or a close-up you tend to use a tighter lens like a 50 millimeter or just a 35 but a 21 is wide enough to make you feel a little bit around the the um, the subject of the frame mm-hmm. and I think not a lot of other directors consistently use that framing in the way that they shoot most scenes, including mm. close-ups and single coverage. Tony Joe and Taylor Ramos from Every Frame of Painting have a really great video on how the Coens use wide lenses on close-ups. Mm. They say it's a little bit intimate, a little bit uncomfortable, and it gives you a good sense of the context around mm-hmm. this character spatially, as you're noting, Wilson. I think, again, about the use of that in the opening scene, because mm. even though it's that probably 21 lens that's very close to Lumen as he's performing, you don't get a lot of context. You can hear mm. noises of the cafe, so you assume he's in a performance space. Also, the way that his singing reverberates in the room gives you a sense of the space. But most of the margins around Lumen's face in this opening shot is darkness, mm-hmm. and you don't get a good sense of his space. 
And again, mm. that makes me think about our positioning in relation to him off the bat of just right. digesting his music directly and then the reevaluation of that later on. I think that makes this film feel like a stark contrast to some of their stuff. And I mean, maybe that's because Devonell is behind the camera. Like mm-hmm. the stripping away of context creates a more almost, you could say, dreamlike world, which kind of works nicely with the kind of music that you're listening to. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting that they, they chose to work with Delbonel for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. it's because um, Deacons was shooting Skyfall. <laughs> I knew it was going to end up being something like that. But hey, I, I think if Deacons shot this, it would be very different. It would be it different, would. very different. And Skyfall is gorgeous. And I would not take away Deacons from Skyfall. Uh, agreed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine a world where Deacons shot this. And I think that the whole thing about Grime and coldness, I think Deacons would go with a much more like documentary-like look hmm. compared mm-hmm. to this more kind of surreal, almost dreamlike quality that Dabonel has. And it's it's, yeah. it's a nice alternate world we have here with a Dabonel shot film from yeah. the Coen brothers. Back to that Every Frame of Painting video, really interesting thing about that video is that it talks about how they don't use a lot of over-the-shoulder shots. Mm-hmm. And I watched that video before I, I went back into my deep dive. And there are more than you, more over-the-shoulder shots than you realize is yeah. my takeaway when I'm watching them. And, <laughs> but that creates a very interesting question, which I don't really have an example from Lewin Davis, but when do they decide to use a over-the-shoulder? That becomes Ooh. a very interesting question when you watch a Coen Brothers movie. Something to think about maybe when we watch a few more. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe when the listeners are watching other Coen Brothers movies. But I, go, I can't answer that go. question. I can't answer that question of why do they use an over-the-shoulder when they usually don't. Right. Yeah. I'll keep and an eye out for it in in the next few that I watch. Mm. Maybe we can talk yeah. about it. Next, I don't have an answer, but yeah. <laughs> I have a last quote from this ASC interview that I thought was hilarious. So Del Bonnell wanted to bring a camera operator, uh, but then the Coens <laughs> told him, no, you have to operate, quote, like Roger does. <laughs> and what? Quote, if I was shooting this movie, I would, I would feel so stressed out. <laughs> That's pretty crazy that they would say something like that. <laughs> They'd be I like, know. no, you do um, not get the luxury of a cam op. Do it yourself. Yes. <laughs> Roger um, can do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And then later later on in this paragraph, he said uh, they were deciding over a jib head and just some like technical like equipment stuff. And he, he said no. And he's like, I told Mitch, I'm not Roger Deakins. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> you know how some directors have a really strong working relationship with cinem- some mm-hmm. cinematographers and, and having to switch cinematographers out. There's, I guess there's some meshing that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, but it, it is really interesting to, to see it all laid out in this in this article about this movie. <laughs> I mean, Deacons and Acones is such a long-running working relationship, and Inside Lewin Davis is, is one of the later ones that they've right. made, and it's like, this is much later in Acones' career. Yeah, I'm sure they have such a shorthand with Deacons, because yeah. Deacons has essentially defined how a Coen Brothers film should look. Right. More so than I would say the Coens do. You know, mm-hmm. and I was just listening to the Team Deacons podcast where they talked to Joel Cohen, and there was this interesting part where they talked about how 
sometimes the Coens would be happy with the first take. Mm. And then Deacons would be the one be like, <laughs> let's get another one, you know, j- just because we should get another one, right? Yeah. Uh, just, just in case. And Joe Cohen had a really funny response. He was saying, uh, one way to say that is that we have a lot of confidence in the first take. Another way to say it is that we're not perfectionists. Oh. <laughs> which is which is kind of funny. And I think there is a lot of trust they put in Deacons because they've worked on them so much that yeah. because they worked, I mean, they've been working since the 80s when digital digital is much more forgiving and digital, you get to review the takes. Yeah. With film, you have to trust the DP. You got to say, was that fine? Yeah. And without being able to review the footage on set, you trusted the word of the DP and that's why you work with them because every time they said it was okay, it was okay. Mm-hmm. And maybe you start working with a DP when they said something was okay, but it wasn't okay. Because that yeah. that's what their work is. Their work is to decide whether it's okay. Um, right. Yeah. Very While we're on, I just took a look at some information about Joel Cohen's upcoming Macbeth adaptation, oh, yeah. which I am so excited That Ethan for. is not involved in. Yeah, <laughs> is it the drama. first film that they're not doing together? Yeah, I think so. Whoa. <laughs> but it's the, sort of so like oh, it's sort of like Lewin Davis when oh. <laughs> when Mike passed okay, okay. Mike killed himself. Uh, touch wood. <laughs> touch wood. Touch the cinematographer wood. is going to be Bruno Delbanel. So oh. I'm curious to see how the relationship is going to change and if the movie's going to look different. Mm, interesting. Mm. I really can't wait. I, I really like Delbanel's work in this film. I, I, I mm. think it's it's a very, very pretty movie. The film starts with Macbeth doing a folk song. <laughs> <laughs> As a final topic, I wanted to throw out there something I was noticing and thinking about on this viewing, which is that there are a lot of ways of saying goodbye in this movie that mostly happen in music. So there's this song that Mike and Lewin used to sing called Fare Thee Well, which Lillian sings along with at at the Gorfine's dinner party, and Lewin reacts harshly to that, and then finally Lewin sings again at the end. And if I'm correct, goodbye or Fare Thee Well doesn't get said in dialogue in any form until after Bob Dylan has sung his own song that includes the lyrics Fare Thee Well, and Lewin has been punched in the back alley and the final dialogue of the movie is Lewin saying to this stranger who is sped off in a cab, but also kind of to himself, really. Au revoir. Mm. Au revoir. Oh, last thing. I think this is Oscar Isaac's best performance. Hands down. Oh, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. He's really good in this. He He's needs more leading so roles, good. and I don't mean life itself. <laughs> <laughs> he really disappears into Lewin Davis, and it, it yeah. was really shocking to me. I just like, yeah. 2013, 2014 is when, like, Oscar Isaac really came, like, became a, a force, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not talking about that kind of force, but... <laughs> 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 but the force of Oscar Isaac Awakens in 2013 and 2014. Um, that's the whole name of the movie. The Force Awakens. Uh, what, what movie are we talking about? Oh. Um, but... <laughs> yeah, but he kind of falls off the map a little bit after this period, like, a two or three year period. Like, he doesn't get that kind of leading man type stuff yeah I remember well, him in A Most Violent Year which I also really liked mm. um, he was really good is in that is that the one uh, with Chastain yeah yes. mm. I'm curious to see what his work in Paul Schrader's upcoming The Card Counter is gonna be like oh, oh. yeah that still from it looks 
incredible. Oh, oh he's also he moving now. Like the Muppet Sam the Eagle. It's a great sound. I haven't seen that. Picture. And he's the daddy in Dune. Daddy Dune. Oh, yeah. Oh. Daddy Dune care. He's also going to be in a Marvel show. Yeah, so I don't know. It's yeah. fine. Oscar Isaac, He's coming back. Collect your money. It's fine. It's fine. We don't need <laughs> you to play, play lowly folk singers anymore. It's fine. No. <laughs> This, inside that inside two in Davis. <laughs> <laughs> the, there's a really funny comment on the please Mr. Kennedy video that's uploaded to YouTube, where somebody's like, "2013, who are these two dopes next to Justin Timberlake?" <laughs> <laughs> and like, "2020, who's this dude between Poe Dameron and Kylo Ren?" <laughs> yeah, who is this dope Justin Timberlake? <laughs> yeah, who that? <laughs> Fuck Justin Timberlake. <laughs> he threw Janet under the bus. He threw Britney under the bus. <laughs> Jay Timberlake, it's 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 not a good year for you, man. Or it's not been a good life for you. You've been mm. mean to a lot of people. Sorry, is that where, how we're ending the episode? <laughs> thanks it's a little rough. It's a little rough. Thanks, thanks to all our listeners. No thank you to Justin Timberlake. <laughs> if you're listening, stop the episode. You don't get to hear anymore. Please, Mr. Kennedy, stop listening to this episode. Please, Mr. Kennedy's nuts. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of D's Nuts. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to follow or subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at D's Nuts Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. If I had a wish, I know I was dove. I'd fly the river to the one I love. Fairly well, my honey.